the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Like it or not, the workplace is changing. But does it work for you? The breakneck pace at which technology is impacting the workplace is happening faster and faster than ever before. When years passed, it sometimes took decades before real change came. Now it happens seemingly overnight. For example, offices use the same basic typewriter to communicate from its inception in 1867 up until the 1980s. But the technology that began to replace the typewriter in the 80s bears little resemblance to the communication technology we use today. And as technology rapidly transforms the workplace, many of these changes will create dramatic shifts in the long-term future of work. For instance, reports estimate that between 45 to 55 percent of current jobs could eventually be lost to automation, with 7 percent of that job loss coming as soon as the year 2025. How can one hope to compete in this changing environment, let alone survive? You might not be getting that gold watch for working with the same company for 30 years like your grandfather did, but there are things you can learn that will not only help you survive in today's workplace, but thrive. We're joined in studio by career coach Dr. David Petrove. Dr. Petrove has been in the field of education for more than 35 years and did his doctrinal graduate study at the University of Arizona. He does lectures and seminars across the country and operates his own consulting firm, David Petrove Coaching. Dr. David, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Dr. David, in our last installment of this series, you were delineating the differences of types of jobs, or more specifically careers and career paths that people take. You talked about traditional entrepreneurship, consulting, contract, and portfolio work. Within all of those, clearly, even to the casual observer, it would suggest that careers and the working world has changed pretty significantly. Certainly, the workplace today looks nothing like what it did when our parents were first coming into the working world, and certainly their parents before them was even more drastically different. And I suppose the changes of the past will continue to impact what careers and work looks like in the future. That's true, Craig. In fact, in reference to that, we know that about 53 million or 34 percent of U.S. workers today are freelancers. If you take a look at that number compared to what it was 30, 40 years ago, significantly different. Well, over a third of the workforce. Yes. And as many as 81 percent of traditional workers surveyed said that they'd probably be willing to do additional work outside their primary job if it was available and provided more money. So, again, we're looking at, even within these various paths that people might take, diversity in terms of options that people would exercise around them. It sounds like this is also becoming more and more of a choice, where heretofore some might say, well, I'm working multiple jobs because I haven't been able to secure full-time work, juxtaposed against the notion now, as I think you're suggesting, that some people will choose multiple jobs because of the variety it offers, the freedom that it offers, or simply the ability to have the security that if one work or position ends or comes to a conclusion, you've got something else you can fall back on. Yes, I tend to look at it as various pipelines that feed into your income. So if one of the pipelines begins to dry up, you can simply divert the flow from another pipeline. So that would be similar to the other types of jobs that you would hold, which again provides for flexibility. It also helps to deal with a, a job market that isn't always predictable. Things can change at a moment's notice, as we know, and so people need to be prepared for that in terms of, okay, if this direction is not necessarily working for me, 
do I have some other options that I might exercise so that I can still maintain a decent standard of living? And for listeners that perhaps were not with us on previous installments of our series, maybe you can just underscore again the notion that the working world has changed so drastically that the notion of being able to secure a job like dad or granddad, where you went to work every day, you spent 30 or 40 years with the same company, you retired with a pension, life was good, had very few things to worry about, that those kinds of jobs and positions, quite frankly, simply don't exist anymore. It's not a matter today, then, of saying, well, I'm working multiple career paths or jobs at the same time as a matter of simply getting along, but rather, what, the need to embrace this because this is really the future of work? And one of the things that I talked about in the last session, Craig, was that my father came from a background of working as a postal employee. And if you do some research online, that's one of the positions that may be gone in the future completely. So people who work in fields that they think might have security and stability to them, that's the case for today. There's no guarantee that tomorrow with what's happening in the world of technology, globalization, all the other aspects of this, that those jobs may just disappear. So this is much like investing, where they say the the disclaimer at the end of the advertisement that past performance is no guarantee of future performance. And in this case, uh, past work history with a particular career is no guarantee that that job, though maybe stable for decades previous, will continue to be stable in the future. And think about people who worked in companies like Woolworths, Montgomery Ward. Those people probably thought those jobs would stay there forever. We're also seeing that other retail jobs are disappearing. Some of the major companies like JCPenney, Sears, are definitely experiencing some challenges in terms of their existence and survival. So as we look at our career path or paths, maybe to give us a greater sense of of self-assurance, we should not cater to the notion that It's been here. It's always been here. It will continue to always be here. But rather, what I do today may not be here tomorrow. And so preparing myself for the likelihood of changes or being phased out or outsourced or downsized could potentially happen. And so if you have that in the back of your mind, your ability to to be able to respond to the changing climate in the working world, be more flexible, is also going to allow you to continue to be employed longer. And it is about the constant need to tool and retool. So individuals who go into the workplace and believe that the skills that they walk in with today will be adequate 20, 30 years from now in the same position, highly unlikely. We've spoken in previous editions about the so-called gig economy. Let's drill down a little bit deeper as we continue on looking at the different approaches to careers and career choices for future generations. That One of the things perhaps that we're going to see is the notion of bringing somebody in for a season to do a task once that task having been completed is now turned out to pasture, so to speak. Are we going to continue to see more of this? Most likely this will be occurring. So One of the things that works for big business is that this type of model can create lower costs for them. Obviously, they're not having to deal with all of the expenditures related to benefits because you basically walk in, you do the job that you're hired for, you're paid commensurate with that, and you're to cover your own expenses. And also, it's going to create more competition among talent. So that, again, focuses on the need to be really good at what you do. And also to think about a niche that you occupy that is highly marketable that you can take from setting to setting. Areas that we've seen incredible growth in is what we call virtual reality. And basically this involves employees who are both physically present and not physically present for the same task. Right now we can have conference calls with members, participants from all over the world. And this is something that people say is a big challenge to them, mostly because of time differences. People will say in the United States, well, I have to be up at four o'clock in order to be on one of these conference calls. Not only that, but they have to be aware of the different cultural aspects of the other people on the team and what they're dealing with. And I've heard my clients say, oh, you know, I dealt with clients who were in Australia and in China, all on the same call. And very, very different ways of approaching a task based on how they're culturally raised and sensitive. So, so many things will be happening that are no longer about getting in your car, driving to a work site, 
and spending the next hour, eight hours there. Now, that example certainly delineates some of the downside to so-called virtual reality employment. But then there's the upside, uh, telecommuting, where instead of driving into an office and engaging in a task and spending time stuck in traffic all day and wear and tear on your automobile and waste of time, etc., if the same task can be deployed remotely from home via computer, it's the next best thing to being there. Exactly. And one of the nice things about it is you have eliminated the time to travel to the work site. So if you typically had a one-hour commute in one direction, you've now eliminated two hours that you have to devote to other tasks. Again, is the plus side of all of this. All right. Let's work through then some of the um, different steps, if you will, in the approach to the changes of careers and the approach the folks have to careers from generation to generation. And I guess one of the one of the first groups uh, will be mom and dad, folks that came through the working world maybe into the 1960s and 70s. That was their era. They're probably post-Depression era children uh, whose approach to the working world, very different. Yes, and when we look at that population, we typically refer to them as traditionalists. And these are individuals who were born somewhere between 1900 and 1945. So you did a quick math on that, and it's, you know, into the late second decade of this century, then they'd be about 118 years old, 120 years old. Probably not not working anymore. Probably not working. Probably well retired. (laughs) Right. And so what we see is if you just look at the numbers, Craig, that constituted about 49 million people at the time. And one of the things that we'll be referring to are the numbers with the generations. Of course, that is a finite number. That number is set. Once those years have ended, you can't add more people to those generations. Now, what you will see is a subtraction. As people die, those numbers become smaller. So that if we say there are 40, were 49 million people who were traditionalists, that number would not be there today. It would be much less. And every day where a number of individuals die, you're going to have a smaller number that, that are working in this field. So with these individuals, basically they looked at how job and career success was defined was through discipline, hard work, and teamwork. And again, as you were saying, these were the depression, post-depression workers. And so that would have been my parents' generation. And they often talked about the struggle that they had. When my father returned from World War II, there were jobs out there. And it was just a matter of which one you chose. They didn't necessarily match what we've talked about in previous programs, which is, oh, I know what my skills are, my personality type. They were simply a job that provided income. And that's what they pursued, and that's what they stayed in for many, many years. So my father retired from the Postal Service after a long string of years of service to them. And I also have younger relatives who are in the Postal Service. And I wonder what their future will look like since they're only in their early 40s now. And will it continue the way it does, or will it change significantly? And they will need to retool for that. So basically, again, these people within this era looked for appreciation for their expertise and their experience. And if they are working, they do consider themselves to be vigorous contributing members of the workforce. And they really care a lot about job satisfaction. And they view retirement as a reward for lifetime service. We're going to pause at this juncture. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Career coach Dr. David Petrove as our program continues. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. 
That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. And Dr. Petrovay, we began just before the break a look at the variety of stages of careers based on the generations. The next one we move to is perhaps the biggest, one of the most influential, and that's the post-World War II baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, 80 million strong. And in the year that I was born, there were over 2 million of us just in the United States born that year. The other thing that we have to think about, too, Craig, is we tend to look at baby boomer as only an American phenomenon. Baby boomers are across the globe. So as the other countries who were involved in World War II moved out of that era, they were replenishing their populations. Their people were returning from the wars and establishing families and probably had their own version of the American dream. So it could have been the Russian dream, the German dream, the Japanese dream, the Italian dream, the English dream. So we oftentimes forget about that, that this is a worldwide phenomenon. Now, how they perceive this and dealt with it may be different from country to country. At least in this country, we know that the baby boomers are a big influence on corporate environment today highly competitive individuals with an industrious work ethic, they look for recognition, status, and money in work. And they see job changes as actually hindering career achievements. So their goal is to stay in a position for as long as they can, sometimes even when they see the writing on the wall because of loyalty and this need for staying within a specific job, they will hold on to it. And they often will put personal fulfillment ahead of the marriage, family, and balanced living. So one of the things that I remembered in being a baby boomer, and I was part of the early wave of that, was that we were going to change the world. And we were going to do things so very, very different from our parents. And yet if you look at our lifestyles today, we're probably more like our parents than unlike them in terms of what we hope to achieve in life. Uh, We also are part of what we refer to as the sandwich generation, where people in their 50s, 60s may not only have children that they are raising, putting through college, but they also have parents that they're dealing with who are aging. So they're dealing with generations on either side of them in terms of caretaking. We also refer to them as the Peter Pan generation. This is a group of individuals who entered into the retirement years kicking and screaming and dragging their feet. I know I talked to fellow baby boomers, and they were not excited about turning even 50. So they were going to do everything they could to be as youthful as possible, which is a big boon to cosmetic surgery, um, exercise, all of these aspects that keep us young. And basically, these are also individuals who are exploring their career options today. They're looking at consulting, managing franchises, temporary work, freelancing. And it was very interesting in a book that I've been reading by Richard Bowles, who's most known for What Color Is Your Parachute? In another book that he wrote 40 years ago, he was predicting that the majority of those of retirement age would not be working at this point, that they would be experiencing a retirement lifestyle where they didn't have to get up and go to work. They had put in their time. Well, what we know today that's very different is 80% of those individuals plan to continue working at least part-time. I suppose part of that is pure economics. Part of that, perhaps, is the fact that we're living longer, we're living healthier, and so the ability and desire to continue to be engaged, to have a sense of purpose. I mean, it's one thing to say, I have to get up today, drive to the office, I've got a full load, I've got client meetings and so forth, versus I have to get up today at 9 o'clock, have breakfast, read the newspaper, and then what? Nothing. I'm done for the day. And if you're still full of energy and, and drive at 60 or 70 or even 80, why not continue to be engaged? And if you take a look at what we described in terms of what identified 65 as retirement age and the fact that we are living longer, 
you could potentially have 35 more years of life before you decided, that, well, you wouldn't decide, but you know, you would leave the planet and none of this was even an option for you. I have a friend who's turning 94 and she's very, very involved in the world around her. So even though she doesn't have a paid position, she's volunteering in as many different aspects of life as possible. And I think we're seeing more and this, more and more of this happening with individuals. As we move from baby boomers, let's talk next about the the next group to come along. And here's where uh, perhaps for we baby boomers, the definitions begin to get a little bit muddy. So uh, clarify for us, those that follow the baby boomer generation are who? We refer to them as Generation X or Gen X. And these are individuals born over a 15-year period between 1965 and 1980. And they comprise about 46 million people within our population. So with this generation... Their entry into the world of work was rather chaotic with no guarantees. And that part of that was due to the fact that growing up, they tended to have more independent childhoods. So they were more autonomous and they had they sought more independence in the workplace. So there was a need for them to retain this personal freedom. And so you, they were looking for ways to make visible differences in the world. This is a post World War II, post-Vietnam War generation. This is also the first generation fully raised on television, the first generation that had ready access to mobility, the automobile, so very different from their parents or grandparents before them. Right, and oftentimes what you've just described is what defines that generation. It's typically based on what was going on politically, uh, as you said, based upon a war that might have been fought and was now over. Uh, It was based upon what was happening in terms of events like man landing on the moon. Okay, That started to have people look at life differently. So changes in technology, certainly societal changes that we saw as well. A major paradigm shift taking place in the, the familial, economic, and cultural fabric of American society. Right. And basically, these are individuals who like to focus on using their skill sets to address the uncertainty of company layoffs. So for them, remember, we talked about traditionalists and baby boomers looking for the security of long-term employment. Now we see the first generation who says, that may not be a reality for us. So we have to make sure that we're ahead of the game with our plan for what we're doing and where we're doing it. And they really develop, they value diverse experiences, and they're comfortable with job hopping. And for a lot of us, when we look at that, especially when we refer to our resumes, oh, what will people think if they see this, that I'm not a reliable person? Younger generations don't necessarily look at it that way. They stay in a company long enough to contribute what it is that they think is important for that company's growth and survival. And when they're ready, they move on. So for the baby boomer who might see that is 10, 20, 30 years, for the Gen Xer, that could be two, three, four years. Could be. And we're seeing that even more recently with the millennials that we'll get into in just a minute. But also, remember we talked about the baby boomers and their approach to work-life balance. For people in Gen X and beyond, they see this as more of a priority. Uh, Although they work very, very long hours, they make sure that they build in other activities to balance that. So, yes, I work hard and I play hard. And for these individuals, retirement is uncertain. So the idea of pensions has really dwindled in terms, and we talked about that, with the number of companies that are providing pensions. It's become much, much lower. People are now having to do 401Ks, They're looking at other ways that they can build for a future, and it's quite a challenge in today's world. And they are perhaps old enough to have either witnessed the parents or they themselves take a hit in the 2008-2009 economic downturn on Wall Street, and as a result, have seen dwindling numbers and dwindling sense of reliance upon traditional retirement plans like 401ks, IRAs, etc. Therefore, this notion of what their retirement will look like, when it will happen, is very different from previous generations. And if you're a person who invested heavily in the stock market, we know that it has ups and downs, and it can be unpredictable. 
And we've heard horror stories about people whose life savings were completely obliterated in that 2008 crash that we experienced. Let's put a pause in our conversation. We'll come back. We'll pick up with a look at what the future of work looks like for Generation Y or millennials right after this. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrove. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrove, please visit his website at davidpetrovecoaching.com. That's davidpetrovecoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. Dr. Petrove, just prior to the break, we were talking about what career choices, career paths, retirement even, looked like for Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1980. Now let's pick up with Generation Y. So Gen Y, commonly referred to as the Millennials, okay, these were, again, individuals born between 1980 and 2000, numbering about 75 million in this country. So if you notice, we see an increase and then we see a decrease. Now, one of the things you have to take into consideration is that the number of years within each of these generations is not held as a constant. Again, it's defined by what was going on in the world. So... That needs to be taken into consideration where, for instance, Gen X was a 15-year range. This one is a 20-year range. So, of course, you're going to have more individuals born at this time. And as you were pointing out with the change in Gen X, 60% of Gen Ys or millennials are switching companies in less than three years. And it costs a company between fifteen dollars and $25,000 to replace each of them when this occurs. What fuels all of this? Well, for the millennial, it's a desire to earn a respectable living, find satisfaction in career attainment, spend quality time with friends and family, and make a positive social contribution. And by the way, when we look at this concept of a respectable living, one thing that we've just been made aware of is, at least in the Bay Area, not necessarily the rest of the country, that an income of about 110 a year is considered low income and qualifies you for low income benefits in the Bay Area. That certainly comes as a shock to those that reside either in the baby boomer or Gen X region of careers uh, simply based on the sheer number of dollars necessary to just make a basic living. Yes. And so for individuals who are millennials, they are what we call living in the blur paradigm people. Does this shift into things like previous generations for whom the American dream that included the white picket fence, the cheap dog, the 2.4 children, et cetera, et cetera, that suddenly now this begins to change, that maybe the idea of home ownership, for example, particularly in the Bay Area, suddenly gets very murky and blurred? It really does. When you look at the, the median cost of a home here, uh, many, many young people say, I could never afford that. And there's another aspect to it. It's the idea of this 20, 30-year mortgage. I'm not sure if younger generations see themselves wanting to be tied down to a single location for that amount of time. So if anything, I suppose you would see a very fluid real estate market where they only stayed for a few years in a home and flipped it and then moved on. And perhaps not only then moving within their career path choices, moving also regionally, but maybe even moving out of state. Yes, and even out of country. So a lot of factors are involved there. Uh, What we do see in the Bay Area is a mushrooming of apartment buildings being built. And even those are very expensive to live in. So again, how far does your dollar go living in the Bay Area? And again, people are continuing to move in, but then they've got to have the incomes 
that can support surviving here. Let me pause here because I think there's an important point we need to underline. As you're delineating for us the different approaches and mindset to career and job paths that vary from generation to generation, I suppose we need to keep in mind that for a person that, for example, comes from the baby boomer generation, for whom stability and having a home and a roof over their head, et cetera, et cetera, and laying down deep roots is important, and yet living in the reality of today might suggest that there needs to be a greater degree of flexibility. Though you might want to lay down deep deep roots, the economy, technology, and the working world may not provide for the ability to obtain that goal. And so does it become then more and more important, regardless of the generation, to be flexible to meet the changing times? Yes, and I think that 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 is something that the Gen X and particularly baby boomers, anyone in the traditional generation that is still working, it goes back to that tooling and retooling. So if you are a baby boomer and you have an aversion for technology, it's going to create a real problem for you because even though you're not going to walk in and be a computer programmer or a software expert, you most likely will be using a computer as part of your daily work. So we really have to rethink then our approach if we're stuck in the more traditional viewpoint of what work or career looks like. And I would say that if someone was looking for a, an opportunity to create a business, I would put one together that is about retooling the baby boomers because there is a there's fear and apprehension about sitting down at that keyboard. What am I going to do to the computer? And they don't realize that computers are pretty user-friendly. There's a lot that you would have to do in order to make it crash. But again, they could be filling up classes with these types of individuals, giving them the tools that they need. Now, as we return to our look at Gen Y or millennials, there is one important commonality between the more traditionalist or baby boomer that's still held to a degree by Gen Y or millennials, and that is the notion that as they seek their jobs, they still want to be with companies that are perceived to be stable. Yes. And of course, we talk about the startups and we talk about the fact that that number may be decreasing because of a number of factors. The young people that I work with as clients, when they are out looking for work, they tend to go for big names. So they're looking for Apple, they're looking for Google, they're looking for Facebook, they're looking for Box, companies that have a track record and look like they have some staying power. Of course, Will they stay around forever? Well, we're already hearing rumblings about the next best Google that's out there in the Bay Area. Remembering that if we're just talking about this area, Craig, it is a hub of innovation. It tends to attract young people who think outside the box. And so their doing so may create a very different box from what we're even used to today. If it took over 100 years for General Electric to be added to the Dow and now most recently to be removed from the Dow, I suspect then for some of these companies that are newbies, so to speak, comparatively speaking, uh, may be a significantly shorter period of time for the rise and the fall, as you suggest. Yes, that is what we would be looking at. And so, again, the young people who are going through employment with such companies, they need to be positioning themselves for whatever comes next. There's also something unique about Gen Y or millennials, and that is not just the notion of wanting to be in a job that has a sense of satisfaction, certainly stability, certainly decent income, but also a place where they can have a sense of contributing to bettering the society around them. And that seems to be a big part of how they see themselves in the workforce, is as contributors, not necessarily as previous generations did as I perform a specific duty and it contributes to a certain aspect of the company. I think when I see younger people, they are bigger picture individuals. So they think about the work that they do and how that might be making a difference to the world at large. They're also individuals who are seeking out training opportunities to build basic business skills. And they look for best fit earlier on in their careers. Remember, I was talking about my father and how unlikely it was that that was important to him. Young people today really want to know who they are and what they bring to a position. 
So they are all about, as that Greek philosopher said, know yourself, much more so today. And the other part of this that's very different was for people who were traditionalists, probably a number of baby boomers, your work life was about 40 years. That was the span. Well, for millennials, their work life could span six decades. They could be working into their 80s because of the need to cover expenses. And for some people, they say, I can't believe that. Because if you take a look at that, Craig, that means that given the typical lifespan of an individual, even if it was optimally at 100, that wouldn't give them that many years of being able to enjoy retirement as we know it. But again, that may be a product more out of necessity than desire based on not only longevity tables, but also the expense of living as we delineated not just the cost of living, but also the cost of living well related to health care. That's right. And again, we talked earlier about the need for quality health care, the one that would cover people's needs as they age and make it affordable. That, because if you add health care costs to the formula of what you need to survive, it really does reduce the amount of expendable income. Our look at the different stages of careers and the way they're approached by the different age groups continues with Dr. David Petrovay right after this. You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrovay. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrovay, please visit his website at davidpetrovaycoaching.com. That's davidpetrovaycoaching.com, or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. And now back to this special presentation, Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World. We've been talking in this ongoing series about the future of work, what that means for you as an individual, and as we've been discussing in this portion of the series, what exactly the future of work will look like from generation to generation. And we pick up now with what the future of work looks like, Dr. Petrove, for Gen Ys or millennials. So for these individuals, just like you were saying, Craig, by the year 2035, 2037, if there are no Social Security benefits and millennials are only able to save about 7.5% of today's household median income in each city, a normal retirement may not be possible. So in this scenario where you have millennials relying exclusively on their savings in the 401k, we don't know what else might be developed beyond that. We estimate that the average millennial living in the largest cities won't be able to retire until their 80s. And they have a calculator that estimates that that might not occur. I mean, in terms of their lifespan, looking at the age of 95, the average millennials will only have about 10 years' worth of income to retire on. It's fascinating because it's almost a throwback to the pre-Social Security days where up until the 1930s, you essentially worked until you dropped. There was no safety net whatsoever. Certainly few pensions existed, but very few. And we've also, in that regard, almost come full circle. Pensions now no longer exist, and the ability of the Social Security net to essentially rescue everyone has more and more holes in it. And so your retirement is either going to be non-existent or perhaps reliant solely upon your ability to inherit from your parents. And if you look at that, and in terms of Social Security being introduced in the 30s, and now we're looking at the possibility of it being bankrupt in the 2030s, it's about a 100-year cycle. Okay, And then the question becomes, what would it take to restart the cycle, what will that cycle look like? 
if it took 100 years to get to where we are today or where we will be in 2035, can that be accelerated in terms of the benefits to those who are on the planet, or do they have to wait it out and say, well, those of us who are in 2035 may not experience what our grandparents did, but maybe our grandchildren will have a different future. Certainly a reboot of any sort is going to be challenging for future generations. Yes. And speaking of which, there is the Generation Z group, the ones that are now entering into the workforce. Now, for them, schooling, I think, will take on a very different look. They will no longer be going to school just to gain knowledge or securing a job based on that. I think it's going to be focusing more on developing niche skills and global exposure. Every year, the world seems to be opening up more and more. What we were talking about earlier with these virtual teams comprised of people from all over the planet, this will become more the norm. Why? They're going to be focused on what specific skills those individuals bring. And if they are individuals who live in India or they live in Georgia, or, and not the state of Georgia, but the, the country, okay, and Australia or New Zealand, basically what you're going to see is these individuals contributing their area of expertise to whatever the project is. So even the traditional four-year higher education may change as the cost of education and the number of schools and therefore opportunities for education begin to continue to dwindle, that maybe going back to, again, more of a um, job skill training based unique to that particular position perhaps will be on the rise for this generation. It can be. And what's just growing in leaps and bounds right now is online education. Um, I've been involved in acquiring a number of certifications that all I need to do is have a computer in front of me. And I go through the modules, and at the end of each module, there is an evaluation that determines whether or not I'm ready to go on to the next one. At the end of that, I take some type of a, an assessment that determines if I'm competent in this, and then I'm given a certification that says, yes, you are knowledgeable in this field. So I wonder sometimes about the brick-and-mortar schools. Of course, people will say, well, what about the football teams? What about the things that are pretty traditional? Traditions change. That may, again, be something that continues for a while. And if a future generation no longer sees a value in it, then it will no longer continue to exist. Those changes in traditions will certainly reach down into the future of work. And as we discuss where we're at today, what do you think is going to disappear tomorrow? What's the horizon? If you could look into your employment and career crystal ball, what's the horizon look like in your opinion? Well, as Richard Bowles pointed out 40 years ago when he thought it was going to go in one direction and it didn't, one never knows for sure And without having that crystal ball. We do know that, for instance, blue-collar jobs in manufacturing, one area that's being affected through the introduction of robotics they're, those robots are able to work 24-7. They don't need a break. They're performing menial tasks that are routine in nature. They can have a high level of precision. You don't have to worry about the Monday morning effect of people returning to work. And someone once pointed out, never buy a car on a Monday morning that was actually that was built on a Monday morning. So there's all of that that would need to be taken into consideration. And that, again, is manufacturing. But what is emerging, as I was saying earlier, is this interest in regenerative wellness. And these are creating solutions for restoring organs that may have become permanently damaged. We're now hearing about the ability to grow your own organs that can be used for transplants later on. So you don't have to worry about tissue rejection. It will be your tissue. So that is an area I think that we will see a great boom in. And geopolitics, the whole idea of the fact that one political system on this planet has a direct effect on another. We're going to see more and more of that, how governments need to interact with one another in order to maintain a certain standard of living. The so-called global economy. Yes, yes. So I think those are two areas that are definitely going to be emerging. 
So how do we then calculate and organize our goal setting and the effort that we invest into achieving those goals moving into the future of our careers? So I think that one of the things that's important for individuals to do is to have a five-year plan. One that is not set in stone, that allows for flexibility as new opportunities present themselves. What you may think you want to focus on today, all of a sudden something new is introduced and you say, oh, that is definitely something that I want to explore. So we need to know that when we have a written plan, we're more likely to achieve our goals. So one of the things that I do professionally is I meet with a colleague on a regular basis. We're both in the same line of work. We identify annual goals. We have obviously set our goals for this year. And then we meet through online technology and we review how we're doing with those goals. It keeps our feet to the fire. And so when you know that you're going to be accountable to someone, it really does keep it in your consciousness to take those steps forward. Stretches you, it keeps you on the leading edge of where work is headed and make sure that you don't get stuck stuck in a rut where some people might get stuck there and find out that job opportunities and career opportunities have passed them by. Yes, and the other thing that can happen is you're working your way through this five-year plan and you make a decision this is no longer the direction I want my career to take. I have some new opportunities here. So as I was telling people in my, at the beginning of the programming, the work that I did for 34 years as an educator, I decided not to continue that. And how do I feel about that today? It was a rough transition. I'm glad I made it. Do we have to then sometimes give ourselves permission to make those kinds of changes, because I can see the individual that says, well, gee, years ago, I put so much time and effort into getting my bachelor's degree or my master's degree, and suddenly I'm pursuing this whole new career track that has little, if any, relationship to what I studied for all those years ago. And we oftentimes look at that as as surrendering of a skill or a tremendous loss. But what I'm hearing you suggest is maybe we need to give ourselves permission to say, changing directions midstream is okay. And not only is it okay, it's pretty natural, as we were looking at the various parts of our lives, that around the age of 50, we begin to reevaluate where we're headed in our lives and say, you know, I've always wanted to, and I've always had a reason not to pursue that. Today, what we can do is take stock of what we refer to as our transferable skills. These are those skills that you carry with you throughout life, the ability to communicate, the ability to problem solve. That's why it's important, I think, for individuals to really step back and take stock of what they bring to the table. Now, as we've talked about a perspective on the past, certainly talked about the future and goal setting and what that looks like, for a person who's retooling, rethinking right now, where should their focus be? So I think, again, it's in knowing yourself. Asking yourself, what are my interests, values, skills, personality traits that I take into the workplace? And then take a hard look at your personal beliefs around who you are and how you function in the world. Because these are powerful predictors of your success. One of the things that I work with clients on is their need to increase their self-confidence. There's a lot of self-doubt, especially when you're trying something new. And it's really important to have someone who can be your cheerleader in terms of, I know you can do this. It's not easy. It's a risk. But you're not alone. And I think that one of the things that I've learned in my almost 70 years of being here on this planet is it doesn't hurt to ask for help. If you're not sure about how to do something, there are multiple people around you who can certainly provide that information to help you get through some rough spots. So I think that if there's a disconnect between what you think and what you feel, it will show up in how you experience life. You may say that you're open to a high-paying job, but your feelings may indicate the contrary. There may be doubt or insecurity that keep you from realizing your aspirations. So you want to make sure that the two of those are truly in alignment. 
You're listening to Shaping Your Career in an Ever-Shifting World with career coach and employment strategist, Dr. David Petrovay. For more information on any of the topics or issues we've discussed on this program, or to request a free no-obligation consultation with Dr. Petrovay, please visit his website at davidpetrovaycoaching.com. That's davidpetrovaycoaching.com or call 650-400-7461. That's 650-400-7461. No portion of this program may be transmitted by third parties in whole or in part without the express written consent of David W. Petrovay, DBA, David Petrovay Coaching. Copyright 2018, all rights reserved. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.